0: All right, here we are one last time. Are you ready to talk about the Holy Spirit, church? Anyone? This would be a great time. Even if you don't want to, could you just pretend you're at church? Is that okay? Are you ready to talk about the Holy Spirit one last time? Well, there you go. We're going to dive in one more time, and and like a diamond, as we turn the facets and the, the image and look at the Spirit, we'll see more and more of who God is. And the truth is, we could do this for not just a few more weeks, but months and years. And don't worry, there's more to be said, and we will come back to the topic of God's indwelling presence. But we're going to come to a close today, and here's why I want you to listen especially well today, please. All this that we've been talking about the Holy Spirit is on purpose because before we talk about the future of our church, which next Sunday, we're going to begin talking about the future of our church, looking at the story of Nehemiah, a time to build. This is going to be a great series going through July and August, so we're going to have some fun together. But before we can talk about the future, we need to recognize the one who will get us there is not you and me in our own strength, but it is God's presence, His Holy Spirit. And so today, we're going to get back into it one last time. And at the end, I'm going to give you some practical next steps. We're going to kind of get very practical this morning. But before we do, I want to share a story that I heard some time ago. It was the big game. It was the high school football championship. Everyone had come out. They were decked out in their colors, supporting their team. And it was a neck-to-neck game. In fact, it's one of those games where the tension was so high, you could cut it with a knife The home team was excited because they were looking. The score is tied near the end of the fourth quarter. And they're thinking, maybe, maybe we'll win this year. And everyone's so excited until the star quarterback is injured and this groan goes through the stadium. Everyone's like, oh, no. And what's worse is not only was their star quarterback down, the coach is bringing in the second string quarterback And when I say second string, I mean, he's like deep second string. In fact, he was a nice guy, but the issue with him is he wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. You know what I mean? Not the brightest crayon in the box. Anyone tracking with me? He had a very low football IQ. And so he brings him out. He gets him ready. He says, all right, son, here's what I want you to do. He tells him to play to run. The boy runs out to the field. The team lines up. And to everyone's utter amazement, the quarterback doesn't call the play that the coach told him to call. Instead, he starts calling 14, 14, 14. The ball's hiked. He gets it to the running back, the running back. He runs, breaks through the line of scrimmage. Everyone is surprised. He jumps over the defensive line. He is zigging and zagging 30 yards. 20 yard people are on their feet, 10 yards, everyone's excited. Touchdown, they win the game. The crowd goes wild, people filter onto the field. The coach is just like, What in the world? He grabs this second string QB and says, Boy, that was incredible, but what in the world caused you to call 14? That wasn't what I told you to call. Why'd you call 14? He says, Well, coach, on the line there, I looked up and saw the two biggest meanest looking uh, linemen I'd ever seen and I just counted added up their numbers number six and number seven I added it together and called 14 (laughs) he says son um six plus seven doesn't add up to 14 and the boy says well coach if I were as smart as you we'd have lost the game now here's why I'm telling you that story, other than to get a mild chuckle and a lot of groans from you. Here's the question that we are going to have to lay to rest this morning. And I'm going to ask you to consider the reality of this question. How in the world, just like a silly QB story, how in the world did a group of uneducated, uninspired, illiterate, they had no money, no power, no political connections. How did the early church... Make it out of the first century. Like if you know anything about the story of the first century church, it is impossible that it would have survived the first few decades, let alone to grow to the point where we are now gathering. Two thousand years later in a room on the other side of the world celebrating the name of Jesus Christ. How does that happen? And more than that, how does this church that starts around 30 to 33 AD in the first three and a half decades grow to thousands and by the year 350 AD grow from a few people all the way to over 33 million people first 350 years? By the way, if you want some numbers, according to Rodney Stark, he wrote this great history of the Christian movement in the Roman Empire. According to Stark, by the year 350, more than 56% of all the people in the Roman Empire were Christian. How does that happen? When you have no power, no prestige, how does that happen? The book of Acts tells us the story of how. That happened, And the first thing we have to lay to rest is what does the title book of Acts even mean? Well, a lot of times we'll say, well, the book of Acts, it's the history of the early church. The first 30 to 40 years from about 30 to 30, uh, from about year 30 to 65 AD, somewhere in there. What's the Acts of the Apostles? The Acts of what the church did, right? That's what it's about. <clears throat> no, it's not the history of what the church does. In fact, if you look through it. The one character who shows up in every scene, who shows up on every page, whose fingerprints weave throughout the entirety of the story of the early church is not a single apostle. It is the Holy Spirit. The indwelling presence of God is the reason the church made it in the first century. And I'm here to tell you he will be the reason the church makes it in the 21st century. If you're looking around saying, oh, God, why? If you're wondering how we're going to get through what we're going through. If you're seeing the godlessness around you and going, I don't see any way out. Let's go back to what God did. Believing God can do once again what he did in the first century, but now in the 21st century. So I want to just give you a survey of the Spirit's presence in the book of Acts. And then I'm going to give you something that we can do as a church. But let me just give you an overview here. In the book of Acts, you will find the Holy Spirit mentioned his name, Spirit or Holy Spirit, 56 times. I went and recounted this week. And if you add in the pronouns him or his, it goes up to over 100 references. The Holy Spirit is throughout the book of Acts. What does he do? Well, let's begin here. The Holy Spirit Fills The believers in Acts chapter two, the spirit comes on the believers on the day of Pentecost Penta. That's 50. It's the 50th day after Passover, the day that Jesus was killed on a cross. He rose from the dead, visited with the apostles, ascended to heaven. And on the 50th day, the spirit comes and we're told in Acts chapter two, the spirit filled the believers. Fire and wind in that upper room, they are empowered to do what God calls them to do. And again, in Acts chapter 4, when the church experiences persecution, the Holy Spirit, because the people pray and cry out to God, he fills them again. In other words, as we've already said, as you are filled with the Spirit, he will fill you again and again. Like a balloon with infinite space, he continues to fill all who will invite his presence He fills them. Number two, the Holy Spirit doesn't simply fill them. He gives them boldness. He emboldens them to do things that they would otherwise not do. He gives cowards courage. Let's talk for a moment here. Fifty days ago. What were you up to fifty days ago? Fifty days ago from this point, Peter is denying Jesus Christ. The disciples have all run from Christ. They have scattered because they were scared. When Peter had a chance to say, yes, I'm with Jesus, he curses and says, nope, don't know the man. How do you take a coward and give him courage? Answer, the Holy Spirit. And it didn't happen over the course of decades, but days, 50 days. And he is courageous. Eleven times in the book of Acts, you will hear that the Spirit gave the church boldness. He emboldened them to speak when others were silent. He gave them boldness to believe when others doubted. He gave them boldness to act when it was unpopular and dangerous. The Spirit of God fills and emboldens the people of God throughout the book of Acts. And then he prompts them towards radical generosity. Come on, let's just be honest. What is the hardest thing for us materialistic Americans who live in a materialistic culture to do? It's to be generous. After all, we quibble over percentages and ask, how much is enough to give? Their attitude was not how much is enough, but how much do I have that I can give away? So in Acts chapter 2, when the believers were in need, they would give away what they had to one another. They were generous to a fault. And in Acts chapter 4, the believers... We're needing help from one another. And so some of the believers who had a little extra, they were selling property, land, houses to supply the needs of their brothers and sisters. Hear me now. In a impoverished community, giving away your possessions so others. That is a picture of the power of the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing thing. When God gets your heart, he will get your wallet as well, church. He prompts radical generosity. He fills, he emboldens, he creates generous people. And the Holy Spirit, I love this, he leads the Christians, the believers, on where to go. Let me just give you a few examples of this. I love how the Spirit is moving. In Acts chapter 8, we meet a guy named Philip. Not Philip Lind, although Philip is a pretty cool guy. But he comes to a follower named Philip and he says, Philip, I want you to go. Where do I go? I want you to go to this road. Well, what do I do when I get there? Don't worry about it. Just go. He goes. And once he gets to this road, God introduces him to this Ethiopian eunuch. The eunuch is from Ethiopia. He's an African man. He's a eunuch because he serves in the queen's court. He is a high official. Reading, though, in his chariot, the book of Isaiah. And he's going, I have no idea what this means. And the spirit leads Philip, to ask him, do you understand what you're reading? And he leads him to discover the truth of Jesus. And then the Spirit leads the eunuch to say, here's some water. I don't know if it's a stream, a puddle, a pond. doesn't matter. He says, I'm ready to be baptized. The Spirit is leading in this moment. In Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9, you flip the page, the Spirit is at it again. This man named Saul, who is a persecutor of the church, is on his way to Damascus to continue his attack on the Christians. But while he's on his way going to Damascus, Jesus appears to Saul and knocks him off his donkey. And Saul hears the voice of God, is blinded. God tells him where to go, leading him into the city. Then God, the Spirit, prompts Ananias, a believer, to go and meet Paul in the city of Damascus. And there he introduces Saul to the living Jesus, and he is baptized. Later, this man named Barnabas is led by the Spirit, and he reaches out to Saul. After all, he's the persecutor of the church. Who wants to befriend an enemy of the church? But God's Spirit leads him and he welcomes him. Then, Acts chapter 10, there's a man named Cornelius. He's a Gentile. By the way, do you know any Gentiles, church, in- anyone? Y- you know what a Gentile is, right? <clears throat> I want you to turn to your neighbor. Go ahead, just turn to your neighbor. And here's the one word I want you to tell him you. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. You're in a room full of Gentiles. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. This man named Cornelius loves Jesus. Well, loves God, doesn't know Jesus. And so God leads Peter to go to Cornelius, tell him about Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit comes on Cornelius and his family. They are filled with the Spirit. They speak in tongues. It's a sign so Peter knows, yep, God's here. They are then baptized. And they are followers because Peter was led. Then, chapter 13, the church in Antioch is gathering for worship when the Spirit of God leads the church to appoint Paul and Barnabas to go off as missionaries. The church prays, confirms this calling, sends them out because the Spirit is leading. Then, in Acts chapter 16, I'm almost done, hang with me. Acts chapter 16, Paul is on his missionary journey wanting to go to a particular region to preach the good news, but God won't let him. He's like, what's the deal? So he takes a nap. And during the night, he has this dream, a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over here. The Spirit leads Paul to this other place. And most theologians agree that in Acts chapter 16, Paul gets to meet the man he saw in his vision. It is the Philippian jailer who imprisoned Paul, who's converted. Because the Holy Spirit leads the people of God. But not only does he lead them where to go, he leads them with what to do. Acts chapter 15, there's this moment in the history of the church where they're asking the big question. What do non-Jews have to do to become part of the Christian family? And the big question on the table is the issue of circumcision. And for the Hebrew people, that was a mark, a symbol, a sign of covenant, of relationship with God. And they're wondering... Do we now have to require circumcision for all the Gentiles? And they get together and they debate. And we're not going to talk about why this was a big deal for all the men, but it's a big deal. And so they debate and they discuss and they invite the Holy Spirit to direct their decision to the point that when they come to the decision, they say in chapter 15, it seems right to us and to the Holy Spirit Not to lay on you any additional burdens. The Spirit of God from chapters 1 through 28 is involved in all of it. You want to know how a group of untalented, unskilled, not connected, not rich people started a movement that 2,000 years later we're celebrating and involved in? The Spirit of God. Why is it that we've spent six weeks talking about God's Holy Spirit? It's because before we will ever see a move of God in our midst, we have to welcome the presence of God in our midst. He, for too long, has been the unsung hero, the one we don't talk about because it's weird and scary. But I'm here to tell you, if God gives you a good gift, you owe it to yourself to know that gift. So when God inspired Peter... To preach that message in Acts chapter 2. And he said, this gift of God is for all. You and I should say thank you. So, so, so how do we do this? See, here's the reality. When I hear all this, if you're like me, you probably have two responses. I, I go away saying, one, it's like, yeah, that's awesome. I'd love to see God moving that way in our day. That'd be awesome. And then the realist kicks in. Anyone in here a realist, also known as a skeptic? Anyone else in here? Uh, You know, you're the one who's always like, hmm, probably not. This one says, that'd be great, but come on. God doesn't do that anymore, does he? God's done pulling out the big guns. Now it's just we hold on for heaven. And maybe if we're lucky, we'll share our faith with one or two people, and that's it. See, That's not what the scripture teaches at all, is it, family? Is God done with his church? No. So what what, what do we do? See, before we can talk about what God is going to do. See, part of the challenge is we start with chapter 2 of Acts when the Holy Spirit comes. And we're intimidated because we see what the church did because the Spirit was there. And we forget that before chapter 2 is this other chapter called chapter... One, Yeah, not a trick question. One comes before two. That's just the way it works. And in that chapter, we get the reason, the way this all works. And I want to give you three verses, three verses. We're going to look at this morning for just a couple minutes. I'm going to give you four things to do. Are you ready? Because this is where it all gets kicked off, not only for the church, but for you personally. Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, says these words. On one occasion, while he, this is Jesus, was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, he goes on to say this But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, Pay attention. This is huge. Jesus is about to tell them how to do what they are going to do. He's about to give you and me the inside scoop if we will listen. But I first want to show you what he does not tell them to do. First off, when we see the large scale mission that God gives to his church, I always want to say, I need a few things first, Jesus. I need some more education. I need to have a class on this. I need someone to train me how to do this. I need to just kind of get into the weeds more and then I can do it. So we want education. Others will say, no, no, no! it's not education. I just need more experience. I need some on-the-job training. Show me how to do this. I need someone to teach me, train me, model it. And all these things may be good and helpful, but we think that's what we need. And then there are others who say, no, I just need more enthusiasm. Come on, if you have really experienced the grace of God, you would tell everyone about Jesus. You just need more enthusiasm. Crank up that caffeine to a level. But do you notice Jesus does not say for you to do what I've called you to do, that you need more education? You need more experience? You need more enthusiasm? Think about this for a moment. Jesus Christ, for three years, Jesus is the teacher to the apostles. If you're going to go through a training course on who God is, who better to teach you than God himself? Do you think they had a pretty good teacher for three years, church? Absolutely. They didn't need more education. They already had it. In fact, in John 14, Jesus is referred to as the truth. He is the one to whom and from whom all good things flow. And so they had education. Notice, they didn't need more experience. Again, for three years, they were with God. Can you imagine what it would have been like to wake up every morning next to God himself? Ah, Jesus, good morning. What are we doing today? Can you imagine when Jesus would roll out the itinerary of what they're going to be doing? He's like, well, it's going to be a good day. First, um, people are going to be hungry while I'm preaching. So I'm going to, I don't know, let's feed 5,000 people with some kid's snack pack. And then maybe later in the day, I'll go preach this massive sermon. I might do it on a mountain somewhere, so we'll call it Sermon on the Mount. Some of you should take notes because others later will want to read about it. And then I'm going to cast out demons. It's going to be an amazing experience. Some of you guys are going to be freaked out. You're going to be telling your friends about it. And then and then we're going to go together up on this mountain, and I'm going to like change form. It's going to be kind of weird. You won't be able to describe it, but Moses and Elijah will show up. It's going to be epic. Can you imagine... The experiences you would have with Jesus. See, they had education. They had the experiences. And by the way, did they have the enthusiasm? Let's just ask it this way. If your best friend was murdered on a cross and you thought all hope was lost and three days later your friend comes walking through the door, how many of you would be just a little bit excited or enthusiastic See, listen, church, they had education, they had experience, they had enthusiasm, and Jesus does not say you need any of those things. What he says is you need the empowerment of the Spirit of God. More education will not change you. More experiences won't change you. More enthusiasm won't change you. The empowerment of God is the only thing capable of changing you and me. So the question is, what's our next step? Here we go as we're about to leave this series, move into the future as a church. What is our next step? Let me give you four things. And to help you remember it, yes, it's an acrostic. I know, I know. Yeah, these are goofy, but if you'll remember them, it's worth it. But I want to walk you through this. Our next step, S T E. Notice what Jesus says. If you want to receive this empowerment, if you want to move into the future the way that his followers in the first century did, you've got to take your next step. Number one, S, you must stop. You must stop. Everybody say stop. stop. Notice what he says to his followers in verse 4. But wait. Stop. See, often we are so eager to obey, we miss out on what God wants to do because we're running ahead of God. But in Isaiah chapter 40, that famous passage, he says, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. It's in waiting that God does something for us. I love that moment about four years ago, my, my son, Stephen, just my buddy, he was six years old at the time. And. We were training him on what to do at night for bedtime. I know you all probably have bedtime routines similar to this, but we taught him. Okay, here's the thing. First, you go to the potty, then you wash your hands, then you brush your teeth. Now, it's really important that we get that order correct. We wash and then brush teeth. Okay, so we got that. Then it's take off all your clothes and get into the shower. So one night, I remember my boy, he's just going through. He's like, I'm going to do this, Dad. I'm going to just obey right away, all the way with good attitude. And he's going and blowing. He uses the potty. He washes his hands. He brushes his feet. He hops in the shower. He's about to turn it on when I say, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. Did you forget something? He goes, no, I don't think so. I said, look down. He goes, my clothes. Head to toe. Everything's still on. I love the fact that he was so eager to obey That he was rushing ahead. I love that kind of a heart. And some of us can't wait to obey. But hear me now. Sometimes we need to wait to obey. That God is calling you to pause before you proceed. That he's asking you to stop so you can receive before you leave. Does this make sense to anyone this morning? We stop. But hear me now. Stopping is not passive where you just sit, fold your hands, twiddle your thumbs and say, I'm waiting. No, 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 it's an active waiting. In fact, did you see what the followers of Jesus did? In verses 12 through 14, when they gathered together in this upper room, they prayed. They stopped and then they talked to God. They talked. It says in verse 14 that they were all together in constant prayer. Let's talk about how long they prayed before God acted. The day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' death on the cross, Fifty days. That's when the Holy Spirit came. Now, let's do some math. Jesus died, was in the grave for three days. We're then told in verse 3 of Acts chapter 1, if you want to look at this, Acts chapter 1 verse 3, it says that Jesus then visited with and appeared to his followers for 40 days. So you have three days in the tomb plus 40. Quick question, what is 40 plus 3, church? Very good, okay. Now, here's the big one. Day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit comes. 43 if we take that from 50, 50 minus 43 is what? They were together praying every day for a week. How many of us just do the shotgun prayers in the morning and wonder why nothing changes? See, it's active When you are waiting on God, when you are stopping, you're not just sitting passively. You are talking with Him. You are laboring with God in prayer, saying, Oh, come, Lord. You say, Why does God delay? Why doesn't He act immediately? Well, I don't know always why, but let me give you a pretty good guess. Prayer doesn't simply invite God to move, it prepares us for His movements. Where we're saying, I am open to you. I will receive you. Whatever you say, I will do. See, some of us need some time to warm up to what God is going to tell us to do, don't we? So we stop, we talk. And the O, if you're ready, if you're ready for your next step, the the, the E, it is empower. It is empower. Jesus, in verse 8, did you notice what he said? He said, you will receive, say this word (coughs) with me, power. That word is the Greek word dunamis. Everybody say dunamis. Dunamis. Don't you just feel strong and smart and powerful with that one? That word is where we get the idea of dynamite. Is the explosive power of God capable of breaking down strongholds. You have sin in your life. You have secret sin. You need help. This is the power that can free you from it. You have issues of non-forgiveness, of being angry, hurt, wounded. This is the power of God that can change you. Think about it with me. How many of you, I'm going to date myself a bit here, but how many of you remember that wonderful TV show, Home Improvement? Do you remember this show, anyone? With Tim, say it with me, the tool man. Oh, see, Todd Zumbrun, by the way, caught me after first service, said, hey, I love that. And because I was in construction, they called me Todd the tool man, and I loved it. Tim, the tool man, Taylor, he grunted, and he had this great Phrase, he always wanted more power. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh. But unlike his power, that'll blow off his hand or his head, the power that God offers will free you from sin and give you what you need to move into the future. He says, if you want to experience. In the fir- in the 21st century, what he did in the first century, you've got to stop, talk, receive the power from God, and then are you ready? Now, now, don't put this up yet unless you're just really ready. Here's the last one, the P. Are you are you ready for it? Are you just ready to be done with church? It's okay, I am too. So here we go. Are you ready? Here we go, the P. And by- before we put this up, don't do any of these unless you're ready to do the last one. If you don't do the last one, then all you got is stat, and that's just not a word, and it's silly. Just like it's silly to listen to the word of God and not do the word of God. Are you ready? Here's the P. Proceed. Proceed. If you want to know your next step, church, the moment you walk out of this room, you stop. You talk to God. You receive his empowerment. You say, what does that look like? Sometimes it's not, it's not that you're like, oh, yes, I now have this supernatural sense. But he will simply wake you up to do certain things. Uh, I don't sleep well. That's just... I just don't. So often my best prayer life starts at about 3 a.m. And the number of times that I'll wake up and there will be a name of someone in this church or someone I know on my lips. And it's like, okay. And I've just learned that when that happens, I need to text the person. I don't call you at 3 a.m., but I'll text you. And the number of times I've had someone come up afterwards and say, how did you know I was awake? How did you know to pray for me? And I say, I don't know. But God told me I needed to. I just had this sense I needed to reach out to you. That's the empowerment. And so then you do what he's empowered you to do. You proceed. And it can be as simple as a text, a call. It can be a note. It can be a word. It can be a simple act. It can be saying, I'm sorry. I forgive you. Let's do this together. God will give you what you need. If you will stop, talk, receive his empowerment, and then proceed. Because he says, you will be my witnesses. A witness is someone who is willing to go and give all they have, even their very life, to tell the good news. And the result will be you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. Did you know, church, this morning part of our family from Clear Creek is in Haiti right now. We're doing this. It's not because we have power in ourselves, but it's because the same Spirit who has given on the day of Pentecost is available to all today. See, where do you get that, Josh? Last verse, then we're done with the series. Acts chapter 2 in verse 39, Peter finishes the great Pentecost sermon, and he says these words, "And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." And I love this. He says, "The promise is for all of you in the crowd. And for all of your children as well. But not just for you. Not just for the kids around us. This promise is for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. Church, we are now celebrating Jesus separated, far off, by 2,000 years in a different country. Are we far off? Oh Yeah. But we've now been drawn near because of the Holy Spirit.